welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Hello, welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Today, I am really excited because we've been laughing in the pregame, which is always a good sign. I have Stephanie Redfeather on. Stephanie, how are you? I am good. Thank you so much. Your website, and everything, of course, will be linked, is bluestartemple.org. Let's jump in and tell me everything about that. Okay. Well, Blue Star Temple is the container, if you will, that holds the energy of all of my sacred work in the world. And so for 13 years, I've had my own business as a spiritual healer and teacher and energy healer, a shamanic priestess, you know, however you want to describe it. I work with clients one-on-one, I teach classes, I uh, offer multi-month initiatory processes. I have just released my first book, uh, so I have a lot more books and products coming, and I do have meditations and home study courses and downloads on my website. So everything is geared around supporting people in their spiritual awakening, on their journey of uh, becoming a more conscious human. You have two books that were released in November 2019. Tell me about, they're they're wildly different from my understanding. (laughs) Yes, and I'm just going to shamelessly hold one of them up. Yay, there it is. I saw the picture. I know. All right, that's amazing. The Evolutionary Empath, A Practical Guide for Heart-Centered Consciousness. I have been an empath my whole life, and for the first 30 years, I didn't know it. And so... Um, when I, when my spiritual awakening began, right tracking alongside with that spiritual awakening was my understanding of myself as a highly sensitive person, as an empath. And so this book was born out of uh, those excruciating years of being an empath and not knowing it, and then becoming aware of it and not having any tools to cope or mentors to help me. And there weren't 20 years ago, there weren't the podcasts and all of the resources that there are now. So this book is two part. uh, It's a two part book. The first part is the bigger picture perspective of why empaths are here. And that's one of the gifts I think I bring to the world is that context. And I believe that empaths are here to help humanity ascend to the next level of consciousness. So the first part of the book goes into that. When I sat down to write it, the only guidance that my my spiritual team gave me was create a definition. And I was like, yeah, sure, okay, no pressure. <laughs> but I, I hadn't seen anybody else get granular on the definition of an empath. And so I spend two chapters in the book breaking down the five qualities of an empath along with uh, you know, the examples of it from interviews with peers and clients and students. Uh, and you know, there's multiple components to the definition. The second half of the book is all the rubber meets the road, practical, how do you make this happen in the 3D stuff? So what is my energy container and what are boundaries and how do you draw boundaries and the application of the divine masculine and feminine principles and embodiment and all of those sorts of things. So it is, it is nearly a hundred thousand words. It is a meaty, meaty book and it comes with eight meaty guided meditations. So I, yeah, I recorded and produced them myself. They're hosted on the publisher's website. There's a page about it in the book. And so if you go in the book, it tells you the website and you can go there. They're perfectly free. They accompany uh, different activities in the book to help support people with their understanding of the material. 
Now I'm on your website and you have meditations for every day. What is the difference between those and the book? Mm -hmm. The ones in the book are specifically created to uh, support concepts that I'm presenting. You know, for example, in terms of embodiment, there are activities to help people get in touch with their physical body. There's um, uh, meditations to help a person connect with the masculine and the feminine because I talk about those things. So there's, they're specific to the context. Whereas what's on my website is just different, you know, like an energy clearing practice. Yeah you know, a variety of, of things like that, how to connect with your heart to make decisions, etc. Can I ask you a question? Because I've, I saw it on the website and forgive me, I just sneezed. Uh, I muted myself. So um, <laughs> you talk about, and you've already said it, masculine and feminine energy. And I think I just don't understand. I mean, I understand that there's, I have a female friend and she always felt like she was rubbing me the wrong way or she was abrasive in her approach. And then I, all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, you have a masculine energy. And as soon as I realized that there was no more friction. Mm -hmm. And, but I don't know that I'm on the right page by what I'm, by saying that. Is that kind of a correct way of thinking about it? Or I would say your perception was probably accurate. And, and if you like, I can give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I want to know. I'm curious. Context and information. Mm. So, you know, one of the major themes of my spiritual awakening was reclaiming my feminine energy. So if I, I'll give you the quick backtrack history. I was a very creative, intuitive child. I went to a performing arts school, like the TV show Fame, if anybody remembers that. Yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> dancing and singing and all of this kind of stuff, being on stage. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a few years, I get a math degree and become an Air Force officer. Yeah, I read <laughs> that. So I was a little confused, but that's all right. I was a little confused. Yes. We'll yes. definitely go into that. So was I. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you inadvertently or due to so social pressure kind of embrace a more masculine energy? Yes. Well, and I don't know that I'd call it social pressure. I, the way I understand it, and this is, of course, all the inner work that I've done looking back and understanding what happened through different lenses, you know, coming into my spiritual awakening was really about bringing the feminine back because as I started going into my teenage years and adolescence, my feminine started feeling unsafe in the world. Mm. Part of that is because uh, my parents had divorced by that time. I, you know, in the, all the wisdom of a 13 year old decided that I wanted to go live with my dad and stepmom for high school. And my stepmom was very uh, mentally, emotionally abusive. There was a lot of karma there. So that's part of the reason is that, you know, the, the expressive, creative, exuberant, you know, sensitive Stephanie uh, was like, there's no place for you. There's work to do. Get your shit together. Kind of thing. Yeah. And so, I mean, to, to the best of his ability, my masculine stepped in and said, I'll save you and took my feminine, put her in a box and put her away. And so you can like literally track the feminine expression going down, the masculine expression going up. By the time I hit adulthood, I'm getting a math degree. I'm an Air Force officer and I am living from my masculine energies. <laughs> okay. So I do understand that. And I think I was spot on in what I was thinking before and and regardless it helped me understand this person who i i don't think that there was any friction i think i was feeling 
a lot of really masculine energy. And um, so I perceived that as friction, I guess, or intrusive or abrasive, but okay, go ahead. I was just to say, if you like, I can share a little bit more about the archetypes and kind of give a context of those, if that would be meaningful. I, I think it's always meaningful for people who know less about um, being an empath. Let me ask you one other question. We can decide what direction we want to go. How many people do you think are empathic like you were and squashed it or had it squashed and are just... And what kind of issues do those show? And that probably ties into the masculine and feminine energy also. Mm -hmm. It does. Um, I would say because of where we are in human evolution and so many empaths coming into the planet, I, I've coined the term the empathic big bang, you know, like in terms of geologic time, 100, 150 years is a blink of an eye. And so those empaths that are here now on the planet and the ones that came before us were collectively the ones hacking the path through the jungle. So most of us didn't have parents that understood us or were able to identify our sensitivities or had mentors or teachers or, you know, church community that could give us tools to to manage our sensitivities and thrive in the world. So almost every empath is going to have some kind of story of, you know, I used to see the dead. And then at some point when I was six, my parents said, you know, your imaginary friends, you know, you're too old for that or whatever the story is. And mm -hmm. you know, to some degree, almost all of us had to shut something down, pretend it wasn't there, or just hold it inside and not talk to anybody about it. And then at, at some point for most people that that internal dissonance, like they can no longer hold the frequent frequency of that inauthenticity and something in the world has to change um, to bring that back into resonance. That makes perfect sense to me. I think it's in a lot, I love your example of the, like seeing the spirit world and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, I think as kids, I know as kids, we're very, we're not veiled by what society says is normal or fits in the box or how it should be. Or, you know, we're not worried about making people uncomfortable as a kid. You're not making, you don't think you're making people uncomfortable. That wouldn't even make sense to a kid. And, and over time, and as a parent, I, unfortunately have seen myself do some of the same thing like that's not an appropriate thing right now not that it's not appropriate at all but you know with a kid who says i love your necklace but also says why is your front tooth black and can't differentiate where one is a compliment and the other one is making somebody uncomfortable in public mm -hmm. for example we tend to squash a lot of that without even, and I knew I didn't want to, and I know I still did probably mm -hmm. with my kids, just squash some of that just because that's not appropriate right now mm -hmm. or in that context. Yeah. Yeah. And kids are like, why do I only have to say nice things? And why is asking if someone's tooth is black or seeing spirits, not a nice thing. That doesn't make any sense to a kid. They don't, mm -hmm. because they don't have that veil of right and wrong and appropriate and hurting feelings they're just genuine so i think probably a lot of people are empathic and don't realize it and do you feel like it was almost volcanic with you like it's just boiling down there waiting <laughs> there was a lot boiling down there waiting <laughs> <laughs> well we can go back because i think we're going to kind of cross 
yeah, yeah. What, with what's now and what's back. So go, let's, let's actually just jump back in time and start talking because you've touched a little bit on some of the struggles, the parents' divorce and your stepmom, but jump back and start us off a little bit differently so we can see your journey. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, I had a, a decent childhood. We lived in the Midwest. We didn't have a huge amount of money, but we were resourceful and, um, you know, had, had just a, a good childhood to the best of my recall. And then my parents got divorced when I was eight and it turned everything upside down. Uh, I've done a lot of inner child work and wound work and by far, the divorce, and then all of the parts in my psyche that got created because of it, all of the decisions I made about myself unconsciously, all the belief systems that uh, got created. By far, the divorce takes up the most real estate in my psyche. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I bet, and my dad got remarried almost immediately, so my stepmom was part of the picture. So for at that point, fourth grade, I'm going to live in the new house that mom and dad were building that mom now took the old house, dad and stepmom moved into the new house, me and my older sister moved in, and it was just, um, just traumatic. I mean, I remember one time going into um, my, my dad and stepmom's closet and just hiding like tucking myself back up under where all the clothes were hanging down because I was just so overwhelmed with emotion and you know not being able to deal with what was happening I mean that's when I, I looking back I know my parents understood that it was painful but I think there were just a lot of things I didn't understand and they couldn't explain or didn't know how or were too consumed with their own pain um, so anyway, things settled out um, for fifth through eighth grade. I moved back with my mom in the old house that we grew up in. And then I'd go visit my dad and stepmom at Christmas and in the summer. And fifth through eighth grade is when I went to the creative and performing arts school. And, you know, so my mom really supported that part of me. But at the same time, she was dealing with her own limitations, her own wounds, her own unresolved issues, being a single mother, not making a lot of money. I remember one summer I got a brand new pair of tennis shoes that were supposed to last through the whole school year. And that summer when I went to visit my dad and stepmom, they were clearing an acre of land um, that we were gonna build a house on. And so, you know, we're burning wood, you know, so I come back home at the end of the summer, the shoes have burn marks and they're just shot. And I remember my dad or mom was so pissed at dad because she couldn't afford to get me a new pair of tennis shoes for that. But anyway, what I, what I, again, this is all perspective looking back, clearly visiting somebody is not the same as living with them. <laughs> so I didn't really perceive what was lying in wait. Like my stepmom was much more nice uh, for short visits and, and when it wasn't permanent. And so you know, I made the decision in, at 13 that in eighth grade, I want to go live with my dad and mom for high school, or excuse me, dad and stepmom for high school, and just naively assumed that we would find a dance studio, and, you know, that I'd get to keep dancing and singing and all of these things, and they're like, no, this, you know, they didn't value those things, like, you can take an elective, and so I took art for four years, and that part of me just kind of crumpled and died for a while, like just went underground. 
Um, but my, my stepmom didn't understand me. My dad left the child bear, child raising, excuse me, if you will, to my stepmom. Mm. So even though she and I were not blood, he wasn't going to intervene. And so it, it, it took me a lot of years afterwards to discover that or to realize that I was just as mad at my dad for what he didn't do as I wasn't my stepmom for what she did do. I mean, because she was the perpetrator, it was easy to be pissed at her. We were the ones that locked horns and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it was so bad, like a really traumatic event was my freshman year, I found out that she read my diary because she didn't understand me and didn't know how to handle me. And I remember just shaking and quivering and going in and confronting them about it. And I don't even remember what I said or what they said, but, you know, I was, I was a pretty willful child. And that was part of the reason that we locked horns a lot. And I just remember that as high school years progressed, I, my defiance just went inside and started seething. And instead of back and forth arguing or whatever the arguments just became me doing this you know just sitting there with my head down my arms crossed just taking the onslaught and then that was it you know like i didn't fight back anymore because i didn't feel like anyone was on my side why didn't you decide to go back to your mom's <sighs> so i don't really have it's amazing how something so traumatic I don't have memories for what 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 registers and stays with me longer are the feelings, not necessarily so much of the the description of the event, the the memories, if you will. My mom let me go on what she called a one-year trial period. So my freshman year was supposed to be a trial period to see how it was going to work. Mom sold the house, moved into a one-bedroom apartment that didn't take children during this one-year trial period. So I remember when I came to visit my mom over Christmas, I'm in her new apartment. Of course, I'm not registering all of this. And then, you know, this is where I can't really fill in all the details, but, you know, when I go back for the second semester of freshman year, mom and dad, you know, phone calls going back and forth. I, I don't know if it was, you know, it's not working out here. You need to take her back. I don't want her back. I, I remember at some point I was going to go back to live with mom because my friends came over in the summer. We had a party, a goodbye party. And then all of a sudden I'm not leaving and, and I'm staying with my dad and stepmom. And my dad and stepmom forbade me from seeing or talking to my mother. And so that began a six year period where I did not see or talk to my mother. Holy cow. Retrospectively, do you have any idea why that happened? I've actually talked to my mom about it and maybe it's so traumatic that I'm trying to be present and take in what she's saying. And then I try to recall what she tells me and I can't, like, I just honestly, it's, it's, it's been discussed as an adult and I just, I remember the feelings, but I can't remember the words, you hmm. know? So I don't know if it was, mom trying to be manipulative or dad trying to be vengeful or, you know, who knows how, what misinterpretation was going on between the two of them. Right. But the end result was I'm not seeing or talking to mom. Period. I have 
two questions for that. One is how did things go once that you were a permanent resident with your dad and your stepmom? How much worse did that go? And then how did you reconnect with your mom when you finally reconnected? Because it had to have been like a couple of years into college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I just learned to stuff everything. Um, we lived out in the woods and honestly, my sanctuary was to go out into the woods. There was a pasture of seven horses a quarter mile up the road and I have loved horses since I came out of the womb. So I would go up there and sneak into the pasture, although everybody knew I did it. So I wasn't really sneaking at that point, but I had them all named and I'd bring a brush up there and, you know, like I, there was nobody else living at home. I was an only child in that my sister was eight years older. She was already out on her own. You know, she did her best to support me. She's always been my advocate. She's always loved me, but she was out living her life, not, you know, in the same state. Um, so I just stuffed things and you know managed it the best that I could and uh, created a lot of dysfunctional patterns. Um, I saw my mom again at my sister's wedding. She got married in 89 and of course you know she said okay you're going to be there, mom's going to be there, you know I'm not going to try to force anything but you know I <laughs> just want you to know that and so you know I don't remember it I don't remember if it was emotional. I don't remember if it was awkward. Um, but I but I do know that I had, as part of my coping mechanism, sort of cut off a lot of those mother connections. I'm gonna get emotional. Mm -hmm. And so it took, um, you know, we would still, from that point forward, we were in each other's lives. We would see each other, you know, a couple times a year, Christmas or, you know, call and talk. But mom, never occupied that space of the person I could always call if I needed help or I needed support. Like that, that's one of the hardest things about my journey, reflecting on it, is I didn't feel like I ever had an advocate, that I didn't have the parental support and love like I wanted it and needed it. You know, I had my older sister and she's been the one kind of constant in my life, but I've always felt like I was alone. And I remember actually consciously making the decision when I was about 16, because at that point I'm being asked to look at, okay, you're gonna enter your senior year. Do you wanna apply for colleges and what do you wanna do for your career? And I remember saying, I'm going to have to make my decisions like there's going to be nobody else in my life to support me. I can't count on my dad giving me money or helping me out. I can't count on getting married and having a generous husband. I can't count on winning the lottery. I'm the only one, you know, I've, I've got to, you know, so my decisions became very practical. There was no heart in the decision. It was, Ah, the military. Okay, you know, that that's what rose to the surface. I tried for the Air Force Academy and thank God I didn't make it. <laughs> I got a four-year ROTC scholarship, went to college and got my commission that way and commenced to, you know, just being practical and doing for myself. There's not anything, I mean, it's not a bad thing to be practical and make those decisions. I was, a, I was a very similar, but I didn't join the military or finish college because I just felt like rudderless ship, you know, like 
there's no one to support me and I'm a little lost in this. Although at that age, you don't really have that, the words to figure out or the life experience. And so um, it's really difficult to be 17 or 18 and, be, and think this is what I need to do for my future self. So in some ways, at least being practical is a default that isn't bad, although military and math, comparatively speaking, <laughs> when I read that, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> You're a math major shaman, slash. Like, <laughs> okay. So, um, but being practical, is, it's kind of a coping mechanism and it saves us. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very much the left brain masculine qualities and they hmm. serve a purpose. Yeah. But what I didn't know is the, the damage, if you will, that I was doing by suppressing my heart, suppressing my intuition, suppressing my authentic self in, in you know, because that's what I had been taught to value was the, the masculine production, you know, be, and, and I'm, and I'm very resourceful and I, I think on my feet and I'm very independent and I, and I love those qualities about yep. myself and they're useful. And, you know, I, I realized years ago, they ran their course in terms of driving the bus. And yeah. So I, I don't know if you've been exposed to the term, the sacred marriage, you know, the, the inner ma the marriage of your own inner feminine and masculine, but that has been a big part of my spiritual journey is bringing the feminine back and then walking with the two in balance where they value each other and they are in relationship and in love with each other. And that expresses out into my world and, and the way I live life. So I, I call upon that practical side when I need it, mm -hmm. but it doesn't get to, to drive the bus. And it, it can also be my default. I mean, I know that if I'm not careful, my default programming is task oriented, get stuff done. I can be I'm very efficient. I, I can multitask. I can get all kinds of stuff done. And I have to remember to, you know, pull back the reins and that that's not all there is. <laughs> it's so, it's so interesting. Well, okay. And now what year did you graduate high school? 87. Okay. I graduated in 88. So people don't understand or were out of touch with the fact that there was no internet then there was no support. There was like traditional therapy. I'm sure there, it's not that there wasn't energy work. Cause I know I had energy work done in 1989 without knowing that that's what I, what was happening. It was just a massage, but it wasn't. And so there weren't terminologies and commonalities in any of that or and when you did work on yourself you went to traditional talk therapy there's nothing wrong with that necessarily but it's very two-dimensional it's like it's one thing to do and so back in that time frame we didn't have resources it's not like we could just search on our phone mm -hmm. you know we were still attached to the wall mm -hmm. and it had a phone book. <laughs> oh, I love the phone book and the pay phone. There's nothing wrong with the phone book and the pay phone. It worked for years. But I mean, I remember saying, here's a dime, call someone who cares. When a phone call was a dime. So aging ourselves exponentially, that's all fine. We just didn't have awareness in the 80s and 90s. Even when, even in the advent of the of the internet when we were doing the dial-up stuff. I mean, it was so huge, right? But it wasn't like, we've come a long, long, long yeah. way in the yeah. last 30 years. Yeah. So 
you feel kind of like stuck and not very many options because you were really stuck and there weren't very many options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So there much up the road. That was pretty much my, those were my therapists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you ever have conversations with your dad and your stepmom about any of this? Was there ever a time when you hashed out what happened with them? Mm-hmm. Dad is, um, dad was one of those guys that was not good in emotion. So he was not the person that you called if you were in panic or chaos. He's the guy that you, you go through it, you figure it out, and then you give the nightly news version of the story. Like, he, reporting the fact, here's what happened. Dad, I had this breakdown, and I went through this emotional process, but here's the conclusion I came to, and here's the part I need you to play for me. You know, like, <laughs> so unless I was really forced, like, I got pregnant when I was in college. And so that was a really difficult conversation. Like, I had to have that conversation with my dad. But for the most part, we didn't have those kinds of conversations. And, you know, fast forwarding a few years to 2007, where I was at in my spiritual awakening, spiritual work, I recognized that I was not being as authentic. I was not being my authentic self in every aspect of my life. And I know it's, you know, we change ourselves a little bit if we're with family or at work or whatever. But what, what bubbled to the surface is, I need to be more authentic with my dad, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, cause dad, he likes to joke and you know, it's kind of like when you go visit dad, you have the same conversations, you tell the same jokes, you, you just kind of get in that groove, you know what to expect. And so I had made the commitment, no matter what that looked like or how hard it was going to be, that I was going to do that with my dad. And a couple days later he had a stroke. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so what I find, fascinating is when I he he didn't die he lived for um, six more years before he died but what I realized when I flew down and was sitting with him in the hospital and just holding his hand and I was just sending me into him just letting him know energetically because he wasn't conscious you know here I am this is Stephanie I love you and I realized that I was doing what I had just said I was going to do a few days before, it just didn't happen the way I thought it was going to. I thought it was going to be arguments, thought it was going to be challenging. And I was pissed at him too. I mean, I had to process the anger, like, you son of a bitch, you, you, <laughs> coward, you coward, yeah. you know, that, that you opted out instead of doing the hard emotional work. And so I, I really had to process that. And what's interesting is, during those first few days of his stroke, I had a waking vision where he came to me and we were sitting in the center of, it was like a circle of Native American elders and he and I are sitting in the center and he kept doing this with his fingers, like making this motion. And I realized that he was saying, I'm sorry, I was so small. Mm. I'm sorry, I couldn't be bigger for you. So that was, that was his way of coming to me and acknowledging that. Wow. What about stepmom? Um, I left for college and then my freshman year in college, my dad and stepmom's marriage started coming apart. And 
just talk about crazy dysfunction. She gets the house. Dad moves out into an apartment, you know, because dad's like, he, he one, he's one of those guys that's like, I don't, I don't need the stuff. You know, you can burn it all. I don't need to take it with me. He moved out. But when I came home for summer after my freshman year in college, I didn't go live with my dad. <laughs> I went back to the house and lived with my stepmother, who had now found Jesus. <laughs> and so it was just this, you know, so here I am still living in this perpetrator energy and figuring out, okay, you guys are getting divorced. Why am I not with my father? You know, why am I with you? And why are you dragging me to all of these, you know, weird things? But what's also interesting is I did, um, I, I went to one of the gatherings with her and believe it or not, I was gifted with speaking in tongues. So when I was 18, I was gifted with speaking in tongues, and that's something that I kept to myself for a whole lot of years because I didn't know what to do with it. So just a lot of dysfunctional, weird, and sort of being trapped. It's like, yeah. where am I going to go? You know, and I would go visit dad, but I, I didn't have the courage, you know, because dad, dad had a lot of bravado. You know, mm -hmm. he was the dad that liked to intimidate your boyfriends and all of that kind of stuff, you know, and I didn't have the courage to say, fuck you, dad. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> what happened when you got pregnant in college? Well, my second stepmother was a, was a great influence on my dad. Like she was re a real good balance to his energy. So he divorced and remarried. Correct. His secretary. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's got a totally different and interesting story, but yes, he does. But they, I mean, she is great. She, they were together until he died, you know, so she was a, a great, great influence for him. But dad was one of those guys that it, you know, if it was too hard, he was just going to cut you off. He didn't know how to be in difficult relationship and so not that he was going to cut me off but you know my stepmom kind of did the ron she's your daughter for god's sakes you know you need to support you know just that kind of thing um but of course dad wanted to know that i was being responsible with all of it so i remember it's like okay i'm pregnant but here I, i'm on wick and I'm going to stay in college, and I'm not going to lose my scholarship, and gratefully, the baby's not due till, you know, the summer, and, you know, so again, I'm giving him the news report. Oh, wow, good job. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you had a baby in college. I did. How did that affect the military and the, I mean, clearly, you, you did all of these things, so it didn't affect it in that sense that you didn't do it, but you had the ROTC scholarship, you're getting through college. Where in college did you get pregnant? And mm -hmm. yeah, let's dive in a little bit to that. Yep, I got pregnant in the fall of 89. So that was my sophomore year. Um, I, I didn't know what, well, first of all, let me back up. I, I don't have a strong opinion about abortion. Like I'm not a person that's all about, you know, abortion is bad and you're going to hell. I believe it's each person's individual choice. And the right choice for me in that moment, that time was to carry my baby to full term and give her up for adoption. And so that's what I did. Good, oh my God. Let's take a moment of silence for the kudos for that. As someone who's taken in kids and adopted, it's the hardest decision you can ever make. And I'm not saying that abortion is or isn't either, because I haven't had to make that 
choice. And so I have no idea what I would have done or, but carrying a child to term and delivering and still saying your best interest is this. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think one of the toughest things a woman can do. Yeah. So you. kudos. Did you, and things back then were pretty closed as far as adoption. Did you have any contact after? Um, no, uh, the, 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 my boyfriend at the time, we went to whatever agency it was, provided all the information we needed to provide in terms of medical and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, it was closed. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is a few years ago, she found me. Okay, well, that was like, I was wondering, I'm trying to ask without asking. (laughs) Yeah, and and that was an experience all in itself, because I, um, let me remember how this worked. One of my cousins had done a DNA test, and when he got the results, and part of the report was, you have a familial match. And it listed the gender and the year and the city. And so that side of the family was going, who? I think that was Steph, you know? And so when I, when I came for Christmas that year, whenever it was, maybe three years ago, I don't remember exactly. My sister, you know, they elected, my sister was the one to tell me. And in that moment, it's like, okay, we, she is, we, we know where she is. We know her name. We have a way to contact her if you're interested. Um, and and in that moment, I mean, I always knew I had a daughter, but it was just there's no connection, there's no, there's no heartstring really, there's no expectation I'm ever gonna see her or have a relationship. In that moment, my heart was broken wide open. And in that in that instant, I knew why every single parent would give their life for their child. Like I hadn't even raised her, I hadn't seen her, I hadn't touched her, I looked at her, you know, they held her up for me as soon as she was born and they took her away. But it was like it brought all of that back online again. Yet at the same time that my heart was broken open, it was also broken because I knew I wasn't going to have a relationship with her. Like I did, you know what I mean? It's like both of those pieces of of joy and pain at the same time. And my dad had just died that September, you know, so it's three months later and I get this news. And so I reached out to her and, you know, I, I just had to play it realizing that I'm not the one in control here. Yeah. Like I, I, I would love to have a relationship. I made myself available without trying to be pushy. I, you know, I said, if you're interested, here's, you know, I'm happy to do this. She was trying to contact me because she had some kind of medical, not bad stuff, but just some conditions, things that she was interested in finding out more about for me. And I, I also connected her with her birth father so that she could have a conversation with him. Um, but she, I, I was amazed at how conscious she was with all of it saying, I think it's too big of a step for us to meet, you know, so we emailed for a while and I, I know her name and I know her website and I know a few things about her and, you know, so we had some exchanges and, and that was it, you know, like on her birthday, I still email her every year and, and you know, I, I know that she was adopted by a Christian family, so I don't know what 
messaging she grew up with. It may be that she went to my website, took one look and went, oh, my birth mom is cuckoo. You know, <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> so I, I have no idea. It could be, I don't it, know. <laughs> you know, well, but she also said that I, you know, I'm not looking for additional family. She said, I've got, she was married at the time, she said, I've got my husband's family, I've got my family. And, and I appreciate her honesty and her clarity about that. Well, no matter what angle a person you're talking about in this, I, I mean, my ex was adopted and I found his birth mom and he decided he wanted to meet her and we did. And kind of once all those connections were made and it was the same thing, you know, it was a time and a place that it was what, how in the world was she going to do the best for this child? And so she did what was best, which was allowed this amazing family to raise him. It was a very selfless act, just like yours and, um, wonderful and beautiful. And we got lots of questions answered and had that kind of connection. And then, but it taught me that when I did adoptions later, I would know everything I could about the birth parents and retrospectively 20, five plus years later, I'm very glad some of my kids have gotten in touch with their birth parents. Um, some of birth parents have died. So all the information I had was that's all they've got pretty much. So regardless, I mean, I, I know what it's like from the perspective of helping someone find their birth parent to raising kids where I'm not the birth parent to helping them connect, reconnect. And because I kept in touch with with the birth parent, well, I allowed them to keep in touch with me as I raised these kids. Um, their perspective is very interesting too. So, you know, it's a beautiful thing that has, that can have some baggage attached to it and try to make that as streamlined as possible is beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, good for you on all fronts, getting in touch with her and the, the whole thing, very tough decision, but it is funny. She might have seen your website and been like, okay, I might be a little further. That's so funny. That's the first thing that you say. Yeah, like you got to rationalize because, you know, it's like the MSU, make shit up, you know? Yeah, well, well, you know what? It's overwhelming. So, and my kids that have decided to um, reach out to their birth parent, they had me. I raised them. They called me mom. And I'm like, oh no, I know who your birth parent is and where they are. Would you like to contact them? I can help make that introduction, you know? And mm -hmm it's tough for them to process doing that. And when they do it, it's kind of like, okay, they have moments where they're like, all right, we need a little of this. And then they want to ask questions. And so I've seen it from every direction. And I just think, you know, it's okay to be awkward with it. It's all right. It's all good. So let's keep going. You're not, you're building skills without really realizing you're building skills through this time period. And one of them is the default of masculinity. Mm -hmm. What made you take a break and think the way things are being done is not working for me and I'm denying a huge part of myself? How did that happen? Yeah. I wish it was conscious um, yeah. or kicking and screaming. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I became an Air Force officer, I never had the vision of staying in for 20 and retiring. I, I made the decision that I'm just going to stay in as long as it makes sense or I'm having fun. I'll get out whenever I feel like it's time to get out. So, you know, somehow miraculously, I heard the whispering of my heart saying, it's time to get out. But it wasn't like, hey, I know what I'm going to do next. It's time to get out. It was, it's time to get out. 
shit, you know, now like, you're like, I had no idea. What am I going to do? What does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I had no idea. And my financial advisor with the company that I'd been with for 10 years said, Steph, you're really good with people. Have you thought about being a financial advisor? And I liken it to like the first time someone of the opposite sex pays attention to you in grade school, where you're all like, oh, you like me? You're paying attention? Oh, that's okay. I'll like you back. You know, so it was like, oh, you think I'll be a good financial advisor? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> with, with no passion, with no consulting my heart or intuition, again, still being very practical. So, you know, I spent over a year going through several, several layers of interviews and getting my exams that I needed to to be able to sell insurance and securities and, um, you know, just all the stuff that you have to do. I separated from the Air Force. I had, you know, as I, as I separated, I actually had 30 days where I wasn't working, you know, in my job before I was actually out of the Air Force. And instead of giving myself that time, I started my job. So it was like I doubled up. I'm still technically in the Air Force for a month, but, you know, I'm going to get a head start on this business. And, you know, so the company I was with, they had this model and, you know, it was just like, well, you just do A, B, and C, and then you'll get X, Y, and Z. And if you don't get X, Y, and Z, then you just do A, B, and C more and harder. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm applying myself, I'm applying myself, not, not picking up on the clues. I didn't know how to do that yet, that my internal self was like, I hate this. This sucks. This is not me. I don't want to do this anymore. What are you doing? And so it finally built up to a head. And in less than six months, I quit because I hated it. And, and what was interesting is while I was an independent contractor, the way the office worked is there was a district agent. And then all of us had, you know, we were in a different office space in the building, but he kind of managed all of us. And I remember him coming to my office one day, sitting on the couch and going, you know, Steph, I, I've been trying to mold you and guide you and hone you and he's doing this with his hands and you just keep popping back out into Stephanie and I wish I had the guts to say no fucking shit that's because I'm Stephanie <laughs> and I but I didn't know how to do that yet and so I just internalized it and you know when I quit he said well at least we know one thing about you you're not cut out to run your own business and I was oh. telling you I would love to see okay. them today and go <laughs> what I got to say to you about running my own business. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's really hard to look at situ situation. Well, retrospectively, you can and think that guy had no fucking clue and was dealing with his own stuff. You know, yeah. he was just projecting his own BS onto you in that moment, but you still have to live through the moment. So, right. right. So all of that is what precipitated my spiritual awakening in earnest. <laughs> and I want to really spend the last time that we have talking about that process. Mm -hmm. So tell, take me through the process. And I think divorce was part of that process too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I left the air force thinking I, I have my next career lined up and quitting and then yeah. feel like I've failed and what do I do? And then I'm sure my husband is going, ah, uh, you know, like he was counting on that and now we don't have that to count on. So everything's up in, in, you know, like we just took a box of confetti, threw it all up in the air and everything's just floating around. Yay! <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. So 
for me, I mean, I kind of had some pre-quake tremors, as I call them, a couple years earlier. I went through mild depression in 2000, started studying Buddhism, like, you know, making some shifts. But this, when this happened, it really launched me full force. And there's about a five-year period of time that I call the spiritual crucible, where I described it as living 100 years in the space of five and was just getting like cooked down in the alchemical pot. Uh, you know, like in metallurgy where you heat up the metal and burn off the impurities, I was getting transformed into a new substance and literally just everything I thought was true was blowing up in my face. I was redefining everything from what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be successful? What do I even want? Who am I? And it was excruciating. I mean, just five years of cussing at God and bumping into walls and, you know, especially in the beginning, not having really a lot of help. I mean, I was starting to learn Reiki and I was going to Reiki shares and, and going to different groups because I was hungry. I wanted new information. I needed a perspective. I needed a context for what I was experiencing. And, um, you know, there, one of the stories I tell is there's a couple of black smudge marks on the ceiling in my old house um, in Illinois in the kitchen because I came home one night and I was just so pissed and so seething and so frustrated that I stomped through the door and I kicked both of my shoes off and I wanted to just have that satisfying thwack against the wall or maybe even break something and they both just went right straight up to the ceiling and went bink and left a little black smudge mark so <laughs> but I, I mean I would just get so beside myself but I, I didn't know I didn't understand the concept of death and rebirth I didn't understand shamanic dismemberment I didn't understand at a subtle energetic level what was happening to me and all I knew how to do was apply force and will, apply my strong will by God, you know, like you, you <laughs> going through death and rebirth takes grace. And I had no idea how to do that. And so through those five years, um, by, by the time I got to the end of that five year period, everything was different. Um, mm -hmm where I lived, the house I lived in, my financial situation, my marriage had come apart, we'd gotten divorced, we were, I'm in a new city, a new state, and I mean, everything, everything was different. Um, and when I stumbled out of the spiritual crucible after five years, where it was literally like, whew, okay, you know, you're like looking around, okay, the world's still spinning, lightning hasn't struck, I'm still here, now what do I do? I realized that in that experience, I had gained some wisdom. And I gained perspective and understanding. And I, my heart called, my soul called and said, if you can make somebody else's time in the spiritual crucible easier, shorter, mm. if you can support them, if you can explain to them what's happening, if you, you know, whatever it takes to support them through that process, then do that. And that's when I started my business. Well, that certainly tied us right back in, which I knew it would. I would like to kind of wrap up by you explaining, because yours was really difficult, and I know you try to make it easier. What are the things that made it easier for you when you were feeling like in the fire, when it was the most difficult? Were there things that stand out to you that really helped you get through it, or things that you implement into the business now 
because of that period of time? Yeah. Um, there's um, that answer has multiple aspects to it. Mm -hmm. um, what I remember, you know, being most meaningful is just really the personal, physical, human support. You know, just the the mentors, like, you know, looking back at my life experience for the for the most part, I did not have the experience of having somebody there when I need them. Mom wasn't always there when I needed her. Dad didn't know how to be there when I needed him. My stepmom, I sure as hell wasn't going to lean on her. And so just having people hold me while I cried, having people hold me while I kicked and screamed, and they were still there afterwards when my face is, you know, red and snotty and, you know, you, you feel completely <laughs> unpresentable. And they still love you. And because they see, they see what else is there. They see the depth. They see what's inside. And so that has really informed my work with people in that I've been to a lot of really deep, dark, scary places. And so there, there's at least nothing so far that has scared me or made me run away. Like whatever it is with you, I will go there with you. I will hold that space for you because I have been there by yourself so that is the trick for you it's to give people what you didn't have not the thing that made the biggest difference to you but the thing that you lacked the most yeah you know and I've never really thought about it in those terms but you know in in a process I worked through with one of my teachers I've done quite a bit of work with him over the last few years you know, where you identify your childhood wounding and you, and you look at the decisions that you made and the belief systems that were installed and the strategies that you started to enact. But then you look at what are the gifts that came out of those strategies and how your greatest wounds were set up to, to lead you precisely to your soul purpose. And, and doing that work, I realized I'm really good at explaining things. I'm really good at taking esoteric concepts and making them accessible and practical because when I was young and I needed that help, I needed those explanations that weren't there. I'm, I'm being what I didn't have. <laughs> God, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on and sharing that. I have loved this conversation. We could have a couple hours for sure. Easily, <laughs> yeah. easily. Thank you so much. Thank you.